Listening Dog Media. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Offside Rule. I'm Kate Borsay and alongside me once again, it's everyone's favourite TV queen. It's Hayley McQueen. Hi Hayley. Oh, it gets better every week, doesn't it? Thanks for that. <laughs> Do-do-do-do-do with my grand entrance as, as if I am the queen. Uh, look, Lindsay's still away on honeymoon. Do not mm-hmm. look at her Instagram, anyone. It's far too depressing. So instead, we've brought in a name and a voice. Familiar to our loyal Offside Rule listeners, the brilliant Bianca Westwood. Hi, Bianca. Hi, everyone. So where's Lindsay off to? Because I'm going to Stoke tonight, so I'm going to be (laughs) super duper jealous when you tell me. Well, Lindsay's in Mauritius at the moment. Do not look at her Instagram. It's far too depressing. Listen, much more exciting here. You've been battling the bad weather, haven't you, Bianca? We've got genuine drama, not just lazy sun lounger days. Um, I always battle the elements. Um, (laughs) I I don't know if you remember back in, well, God, I don't even remember. I think it's 2014, Dagenham and Redbridge, Storm Bianca, when Jeff Stelling and all the other guys found it completely hilarious that I was caught in in a storm and I got absolutely (laughs) drenched. But uh, yeah, Storm Eunice wasn't too bad for me this year, actually. Where was I the weekend? I was at Derby and I was undercover. So I was was fine. Yeah, I was absolutely fine. Peterborough, not so lucky, I'm afraid. They lost that match in the 93rd minute, but Wayne Rooney definitely was very happy. So yeah, I escaped. I escaped the rain this week for once, but you never know. I'm, I'm in Stoke this evening so uh but i've got my uh, my heated gilet i know very flash is this the magic secret then because we do have yes. lots of discussions on this show mm. about the latest keep yourself warm on the side you need all kits. of the gadgets I, I i took inspiration from jackie oatley who has heated blankets i think she she's a queen got a portable she, heater yes so I've got all of my thermals at the ready, my heated gilet, my Ugg boots and, and everything you possibly need uh, to be on that gantry tonight. So hopefully I'll be fine. <laughs> I saw someone, and I'm trying to remember who it was, with an actual heated cooking pot, like a portable casserole, oh, dinner was... warmer type oh, thing. Yeah, oh. I know who that was. Uh, Reshmin. It was Reshman She she I, brings curry into into no. work for the talk oh, sport no. guys. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nobody uh-huh. does that for me, unfortunately. Maybe some Percy uh-huh. pigs from the from the garage on the way in. That's that's probably as much as I get. A sandwich if you're lucky in League League One. Maybe there are some portable barbecue opportunities as the weather gets a bit warmer <laughs> for you. I think could be a fire think, hazard though, Kate. I'm not sure. I want to... curry. Yes. Well, yeah. Possibly. Possibly. Well, look, it's lovely to have both of you on. Uh, Hayley, I hope you've survived the stormy mm-hmm. weather. I, I, I had to leg it back from the seaside on Friday when that red weather warning came in. Oh. I was right next to the coast. I was, okay, I better head back to London quickly then. So off I off I ran in the car. Um, hopefully everything's still clear and clear and present in your garden, Hayley. It's not too bad. There were a few pot plants down. The furniture was at the back of the garden. In fact, the cover for the furniture was in the pub beer garden. Um, but I got it back. Had to stop for a swift half. Um, what a shame. Yeah, I was at Sky on Friday. I was on air and we had no reporters, nobody anywhere doing anything. Just We just thought there's... Not, first of all, we don't want to put anyone in danger. And secondly, there's no way a link or any kind of technology between us and, and anywhere but base was going to work. So that was quite interesting not to have anyone out and about. Mm. And then I drove home in it at two o'clock at the height of the store, which was a bit yeah. stupid in oh. my tiny little mini. Um, but I, I took the, uh, it was the scenic route. I didn't go on the motorway because I was a bit worried, but um, and I felt like I was a Sky News reporter because I kept stopping by fallen trees, getting out the car. <laughs> I saw that on your uh, Instagram. <laughs> putting them on it. I was literally pulling over and look at what I've just found at the side of the road, a tree uprooted. Yeah, I was, I was, that kept me entertained on my, on my drive home. Did you come across any trampolines? Because there have been quite a few children's uh-huh. trampolines wayward across the country, here, there and no, everywhere. But there's no way I'd be giving it back if one flew into my <laughs> garden. I'd be pilfering it. It's mine now. 
If I got a trampoline in my garden, it would literally be the garden. Uh, my garden's oh. tiny, so we'd, I'd literally jump. I'd, I'd have to jump onto it to get out the back door. <laughs> um, well, look, I hope uh, as listeners, you're all safe and well, and everyone managed to escape without too much damage. Uh, a quick reminder that you can subscribe to the Offside Rule via your favourite podcasting app. Uh, you can also check us out on Twitter at Offside Rule Pod, and uh, you can find us online at OffsideRulePodcast.com. Quick shout, by the way, ladies, I must mention thank you to Twitter who put uh, the Offside Rule logo up on the LED screens at the Arnold Clark Cup. Uh, it's still going on, of course, the tournament, but uh, we've had mm. a lovely bit of advertising thanks to Twitter who help us out with a few things on the website. And they've put put our brand up in lights, which is Amazing. like such a lovely <laughs> achievement, right? Yeah. So Made look it. out for Big that. Time. If, yeah, if you're able to catch the final Arnold Clark Cup game, do look out for that. Coming up on the show then with Aaron Ramsdale starring in a hilarious advert promoting a local business. Uh, we look at some other examples of footballers doing their bit to help their community. And with Champions League knockouts well underway and the Premier League sides performing strongly once again, we're asking what's the secret? Are we in the middle of a period of English dominance in Europe's primary competition? But first, with numerous new managers excelling in the Premier League this season, we're going to discuss which newbie has been the most impressive. And there's a few to choose from, thankfully. So since the end of last season, there have been 12 managerial changes in the Premier League, with Watford, Everton, Spurs changing manager twice, and more long-term bosses like Daniel Farker and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer losing their jobs. Well, that's meant that some familiar faces such as Roy Hodgson and Eddie Howe have returned to the top flight, but also some newcomers to the Premier League have arrived, like Bruno Large and Patrick Vieira, who've been given their chance to impress in the dugout. So today, let's analyse which manager new to the division has done the best job. Okay, it's going to be quite tough, actually, this. Um, Bianca, as our guest on today's mm -hmm. show, um, who are you going to put the case forward for? Well, as, as Lindsay's not here, and obviously we all know she's a huge Wolves fan, I'm going to take her place and I'm going to choose Bruno Larger. And that's another reason I interviewed him quite recently. And I really kind of took to him. It was a, it was over Zoom, but even though he's quite quiet and mild-mannered, I, I really kind of liked his style and the way he seemed very meticulous. He was very friendly. He came across you know, very astute in in, um, in his approach to how he manages. But I must admit, when he came to the Premier League, although he'd worked as an assistant to Carlos Carvalhal at Swansea and at Sheffield Wednesday, I hadn't, I didn't really know too much about him. I didn't know kind of what he, what he was about. We, I'd never crossed paths with him at any championship games. Um, but I knew he'd managed Benfica and I knew he'd won the title a few years ago. And so I thought when he came in, I thought, God, this is a bit of a gamble because Nuno, what he'd achieved at the club, two seventh place finishes, a run in the Europa League to the quarterfinals. But by the end of Nuno's time there, it kind of looked like he'd taken Wolves to the end of the road in that he sort of squeezed the absolute best out of them. But it still felt like, Bruno Large was a risk, but I think that risk has really paid off so far anyway. They're currently seventh, potentially eighth if Spurs beat Burnley um, tonight. They're six points off Man United with two games in hand. It's their best points tally at this stage of a top flight season since 1972. They've got more points than they did at this stage last season. I mean, the stats are just phenomenal. Mm. They've won six of their last eight, losing only once. Only Manchester City and Liverpool have won more points in that time. They've conceded 18 goals, same as Chelsea. Only Man City have a better defence. Um, it's the club record for fewest conceded at this stage as well. It's like... You know, Reel them off, isn't it? Exactly. And if they go ahead in games, they're unbeaten in the league if they score first. Yeah. So I'm hoping David Moyes is really doing his homework because that's who West Ham have got this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> so we must not let them score first. Mm -hmm. The only the only kind of fly in the ointment really is that they just don't score enough goals. They're the third lowest scorers in, in the Premier League with 23. Whether 
Wolves fans, I mean, Lindsay will be able to tell us whether they're happy with that. But I think in your first season, you can kind of sacrifice mm. a little bit of that flair to build the solid foundations. Mm. And I mm. think that's what he's doing. Um, one good thing, sorry to keep banging on, but um, when he won the Portuguese league, it was with a record equaling goal tally, averaging three goals per game. So I think next season... He's going to do something about that. Stop scoring the goals, yeah. And and actually, he's got a settled team there, hasn't he? In Mm. terms of regular starters, and I think what we're seeing, which is which is so important, really, especially in the top flight of football, because you can't. There's no margin for error. Is the Mm. players really playing for their manager, really believing in the vision he's got? And you're right. Whenever I've watched interviews with him, I've never interviewed him, but whenever I've watched interviews, there's there's something about him. There's a certain X factor, and he's he's Mm. quite an unassuming guy, really. Um, But there's definitely something to him. It it was really key to keep Connor Cody as well this season, and that you know there was talk about him leaving. I think keeping him has been, you know. We talk about signings, but sometimes when you keep a player, that can be just as big, can't it? Mm. Hayley, what about you? We've got kind of um, a choice of of a few here, haven't we? When we talk about managers that are brand new to the league, if we just focus on that. Yeah. Speaking of X Factor, I I have selected out Stephen Gerrard and making the move from Scotland to England, which... Some managers find it very hard, particularly when you come from Rangers or or Celtic. But Brendan Rodgers bucked the trend, and um, Stephen Gerrard decided to to follow suit, return to the to the Premier League as a manager instead of a player. And I think the best thing he did was not go to Liverpool or try and get back into Liverpool and maybe I work under Klopp yeah. in the hope that one day he would be taking over at Liverpool. I think what he's done uh, and for the club, I think is a masterstroke. I think not just him as a manager in terms of his skills. I just think the way that he's come in and galvanised the team and, and just given them some positivity. I think the January transfer window just says it all with regards to who he managed to attract to the club as well. I think he's going to be a huge influence in selling, I guess, the vision of the club to players. And I think he'll continue to do that in in, in the summer, massively utilising his connections. I think that's what we get more from. It might not necessarily be the specific coaching and managerial skills, which I think he's probably still got a lot to learn. But I think his name alone, he can use to bring these players in and get the best out of them unfortunately for him despite the stats looking quite good since he's come in he's had disappointing defeats hasn't he to Newcastle and Watford they had so many chances but just not able to convert anything he had 20 shots in that game against Watford with just one on target I think 10 against Newcastle and the game before that prior to, I can't remember what it was but I was really impressed with this Aston Villa side when they took on Man United in the FA Cup I know United won it but they could very, very, very easily have knocked United out of the cup. I think they've got enough there to show that they, they will stay in the league. They'll be absolutely fine. I don't know what the long-term plan is for Gerard and how far you can go at Aston Villa. Uh, but I think they've got such exciting players. Bertrand Traore has um, been missing as well from the uh, involvement in the Africa Cup of Nations. He was injured when he got back. So he'll be back in the side and has been missing for key games. Esri Konsa back following his suspension as well. And I just think for a man that's only in his second managerial role, the first time he's managed in the Premier League, he's just doing everything perfectly Mm. he conducts himself brilliantly I know Bianca you're a big fan of Gerard I'll I'll ask Mm -hmm. you about him in a moment but the 13 games that he's played yeah he might have only won five and drawn two and and lost six but it's the points per game you have to look at points per game of 1.3 versus 0.9 for Dean Smith so it's not a massive upturn and after four wins in his first six, Villa have only won one of their last six with, with four defeats, as you mentioned, to crucial teams as well, gifting them points in this relegation battle. I still think it's just enough to give them hope and to give them a little bit of direction and just to, to give them that huge confidence boost as mm. well. There was pressure after the transfer window to make sure that his signings did well. And I don't even need to tell you how Coutinho is doing. Absolutely flying. Lucas Dean as well. Callum Chambers, a good bit of business uh, on on a free. And it looks like he might be raiding Liverpool in the summer as well. We hear that um, Joe Gomez, who Klopp didn't want to let go halfway through the season, could be coming um, down to help shore up their defence. And I think they're going to have to look at their forward line as well and look at kind of what is going wrong in that final third. When, when Villa said, you know, there is a lot of bit of, there is a lot of pressure on him right now. And he bemoaned 
bit of a lack of quality from his side. So he was quite public about that. Um, he said, you know, I, I need to demand more from the players in the final third. Uh, we're getting into crossing positions. We are getting in and down the sides, but with only 20... We, well, we had a massive 20 shots on goal on Saturday, only managed one on target. For me, that is a quality issue. Ooh, he said, that has to come from within the dressing room. Mm. So there we go. Wonder which leaders are going to be stepping up to help with that. Yeah, and um, Gerard Tavilla was an interesting one because I totally agree that he shouldn't have gone to a top flight club too soon for him to go back to Liverpool. But of course, the risk with that, Bianca, was that if he didn't do it at Liverpool, at Villa, where, you know, certain elements are constrained, it might be finances, it might be the state that his team was in when he arrived. If he didn't do well at Liverpool, then that could have potentially blighted his managerial record mm. for quite some time to come. He's, he's doing a good job of it so far. What did you think when Gerard arrived at Villa, Bianca? I think he needed a club similar to Aston Villa's level before he took on Liverpool because as you say he, 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 we look at what Frank Lampard what happened to him at Chelsea he wasn't given that that time um, and, and it worked out rightly so really they went on to win the Champions League under Thomas Tuchel so I think you kind of need even though Lampard had his time at Derby it's a completely different scenario when you're in the Premier League. So I think Stephen Gerrard definitely needed that experience and time with a, a team like Villa, who, you know, they have they, they flirted with relegation. Uh, you know, it wasn't looking great under Dean Smith, but it has so much potential. And the squad is there, really, and they have the resources to bring players in. The thing is, with Stephen Gerrard, the job's half done in, in terms of transfers because he is going to attract those kinds of, of names, isn't he? Mm, um, mm, the fact mm. that he can bring Philip Coutinho to Aston Villa, who else would have been able to do that? Yeah, exactly. I love Dean Smith, but he, you know, he wasn't going to go <laughs> Maybe for him. not. Maybe not. <laughs> um, in terms of their form, it hasn't been great, but, uh, you know, Danny Ings, they've still got him in the forward line. I'm really surprised that he's talking about a lack of quality in the final third. I don't know why Danny's having a, a little bit of a, a tough time um, in front of goal at the moment, but I think if, if he sort of gets his shooting boots back on, that they'll be flying for sure. Mm. I'm going to chip in here um, with mine actually, because in a way that there are parallels with Steven Gerrard in terms of a Premier League icon coming back um, or Premier League icon as a player coming back to manage in the league. And that of course is Patrick Vieira. Um, I think he'd, come with mm. arguably even even less experience than Steven Gerrard to a certain extent, or maybe it was parallel. He'd spent some time um, after leaving um, the coaching staff at City um, over in the States and he'd managed at Nice as well, but had hardly sort of made a roaring success of his time at Nice. And so, you know, again, you don't necessarily know what you're going to get and whether he's going to live up to that reputation as well. It's the reputation that actually could could stand in his way. And um, he wasn't first choice for Palace either. They tried to get Lampard and Nuno. Um, and, and I think they've been, well, definitely he's been ratified with his uh, insistence of going for it and making a good job for it. When he arrived, he had a huge rebuild on his hand. He had an ageing squad, didn't he? So players like Townsend, um, Sacco, Hennessy had to go. Uh, and he spent a lot. But really interestingly, there there is a huge youth revival going on there with the players that he spent on. The majority are under 25. I think it's only Will Hughes, really, that's that's kind of over that 25 mark. And he spent really cleverly as well. You know, players like Mark who was originally at Chelsea, Michael Elise as well, you know, players that have proved themselves uh, in the lower leagues or in the championship anyway. He's bought them in Conor Gallagher on loan again, another Chelsea product there. So he's bought well, definitely plays a more attacking style of football than Roy Hodgson as well. I've not drilled down the stats, um, but I'm sure that they're notching up many more chances uh, than were created during Hodgson's reign. I, I think he's still got some older players to get rid of and their form has dipped. They've won just two in the last 14 games. But, um, and when we're talking about this end of the table, this is crucial. They haven't been lower than 15th since the end of September. Currently 13th, eight points clear of relegation. So it looks like they're okay. They've notched up some strong results, 2-0 against City, 3-0 against Spurs, a draw against Arsenal. And interestingly, no heavy defeat. So whilst they're playing this more attacking style of football, the defence is still, you know, as you'd expect uh, from someone like Vieira, very organised. Um, they've not conceded more than three goals in any game the whole season, Palace, which I think is really important for a team uh, that, you know, could potentially be struggling down the wrong end of the table. So... 
I like what Vieira's done. I think it's exciting. And I think having, you know, players like Gerard and Vieira as managers back in the league is also really, really good for the Premier League as well. Yeah, definitely. I think with Vieira, he's another one of those characters. He just has that aura about him, doesn't he? And uh, I've been to Palace a couple of times this season to do interviews and Zaha Wilf was telling me how when he talks, there is silence. Everybody <laughs> listens. He really listen. commands. Yeah, that yeah. he really commands respect. There's quite a few French speakers there as well. So they've got that kind of little click, but not in a negative way. They, they have that cohesion in the squad, I think. And, um, you know, when Patrick was, when I was interviewing him and he speaks, it really feels like you're learning something. And I think the young players will really feed off of that. So... That's why I think he's he's been doing quite well and I think he will go on. Maybe not pulling up trees because they don't really have the finances to splash cash, but he'll make the best of the squad that he's got. I yeah, think. yeah. And his astute signings so far mm, yeah. um, are, all, are all very, very credible. We'll wrap it up there. Perhaps our listeners would like to chip in with a few more votes. We obviously haven't talked about managers who've who've managed in the league and then come back for a second or even a third stint, uh, you can let us know if you disagree with us at Offside Rule Pod, uh, if you want to get involved with that. Next up, let's talk Champions League. Okay, so last week saw Manchester City comfortably swat aside Portuguese champion Sporting CP 5-0, whilst Liverpool overcame a tricky period to beat Italian champions Inter Milan 2-0. With five English finalists in the last four years, four more than any other country, by the way, are we in a phase of English dominance in the Champions League? And I'm going to add in there again, because this isn't the first time Mm -hmm. in the history of the Champions League uh, that we've had all-out dominance from English teams, but I'll perhaps drop that in a a little bit later on. Hayley, why are English clubs doing so well in the Champions League? I'm going to actually focus on money. Money, 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 and all the money that comes to the Premier League, which in turn has a knock-on effect because... The Premier League then manages to attract the best players because of the money that they have in the league. And goodness me, it's kind of no surprise, really, when when you look at some of the stats. Have a listen to this. And I was aghast at this. When Liverpool won the league, okay, in 2018-19 season, they got £152.4 million. Okay. I mean, even relegated Huddersfield Town picked up £96.6 million more than Bayern Munich got for winning the Bundesliga. That is absolutely astonishing, isn't it? And you just have to look at how Manchester City fare. And I'm going to use them as a bit of an example. So, and Chelsea as well, originally. Last May was Chelsea's third final since Roman Abramovich bought the club in 2003. Regardless of who wins it or not, they got to a final. They lost to Manchester United in the 2008 final. That was the first between two English clubs. Chelsea they then won it in 2012. And I think we've seen the dominance end with Real Madrid and Barcelona winning this tournament, I think in particular with big players leaving. Last May was City's first Champions League final since Sheikh Mansour bought the club in 2008, which is surprising. Yes, they've 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 got to quarterfinals, semifinals, they've done well in the competition, but the first time they've managed to get to a final. And that was 22 years after City needed penalties to beat Gillingham in the English third tier playoff final. So I think when you look at it like that, Times have uh, changed. <laughs> you kind of have to look at the transformation. Now they are, yeah, getting to Champions League finals. I know Pep Guardiola would still like to win one, uh, but I think you just have to look at the, the the big amounts of money that are being pumped into these clubs and the kind of knock-on effects it has. But not just the money that's coming into the Premier League, but the money that these other European sides don't have. You just look at the mess that Barcelona are in right now and the debt that they're in. Yeah, that's just one little example from me. And just breaking it down like this and simplifying it, Man United topped the net spend tally in the last 10 years. 14 Premier League clubs 
are in the top 20, okay? Over the last 10 years, Man United have a net spend of over 900 million, Man City over 800, Paris Saint-Germain nearly 800, and Barcelona 546. And surprisingly, it's Arsenal with 489. You've got Everton and even Aston Villa and Chelsea in the top 10. Uh, Liverpool, Newcastle, West Ham, Spurs, Brighton, Leicester Palace and Wolves also in the top 20. And look at this. Over the last decade, Premier League clubs have a net spend of £5.7 billion. That's six times more than Serie A. Just picture that. 10 times La Liga and 14 times the Bundesliga. Ligue 1 is in profit in that time, by the way. So... Yeah, you just keep on spending that money and eventually it just comes off, doesn't it? You get yourself into Champions it, League final. It just goes to show how inflated the Premier League spend is then, doesn't it? Ten times more than La Liga has been spent in the Premier League over the last 10 years. Uh, so that is an overwhelming supporting argument as to why this might be the case. Um, I must admit, I didn't, didn't realise the money was quite that huge, I suppose. When we look at clubs abroad, there are just specific teams rather than league spending, aren't they? You know, look at Barcelona, Real Madrid um, and PSG as examples of that. I'm going to weigh in here before we go to you, Bianca, and say a little bit about how the downfall of Spanish clubs has contributed to English dominance. We know the mess that Barcelona are in. Uh, in terms of Real Madrid, Cristiano Ronaldo's gone. He was such a big player for them in the Champions League, wasn't he? Since he's gone, they failed to reach the final with two last 16 exits in 2019 and 2020 and a semi-final in 2021. And many of the big signings that have been made by them have underwhelmed as well. They just haven't performed Hazard, etc., etc. We we know what's going going on at Barcelona, as we've said, uh, massive money meltdown there I'm sure hasn't helped them I think one other key element to me and uh, for me and this is where I can draw a comparison with what happened in the late 2000s and that's that the same English teams are qualifying year in year out it's that consistency of qualifications you've got the same teams going up against the majority of the same other teams and so they are building up invaluable experience and it's becoming a habit it's becoming normal for them to perform against the big sides the last time this happened by the way was in the late 2000s so from 0405 to 09010 it was the same four english teams arsenal liverpool chelsea man united who played in the competition that's that's a really significant amount of time the same four teams and that bore fruit, of course, because between 05 and 2012, three English clubs won the competition, Liverpool, United and Chelsea, and an English club made it to the final on eight occasions. That's what happened last time round. This time over the last four seasons, we've had the same again, but this time our four or five clubs, depending on how many it is, all the same teams again, Man City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Spurs, Man United. So basically it's becoming a habit would be my argument. Bianca. Yeah, I think that sort of shows you that practice makes perfect and that experience is kind of beginning to bear fruit. But I don't want to rain on you guys parade. Go on. (laughs) But I'm not completely convinced that it's a dominance. Yes, finalists, but not necessarily regular winners. Money, yes, but it hasn't actually bought the trophy yet for Manchester City. I know... Chelsea, yes, but they've been in the final before. They've won it before. So it's kind of a little bit easier to win your second than than your first. So um, when you look at the, the outright dominance, I don't think it's happening at the moment. Yes, I think it's on its way. Three of the last fi- four finals have featured English teams. Two of those all English. But I think you have to win it season upon season upon season before you start talking about dominance we're not looking at like a real madrid barcelona type grip on europe if an english team wins it this season and and next season then i think we can start saying that because if you look at it this these kind of phenomena comes in phases anyway the spanish teams dominated the 2000s in both competitions this was different from that period of 2005 2012 like you you spoke when three english clubs Liverpool, United, Chelsea won the competition. An English club made it to the final eight times, like you said, Kate. But before that, it was Spain in the 50s, 60s, was Portugal and Italy, 70s, the Dutch and the Germans. Then late 70s, early 80s, you had Liverpool, Forest, Villa, Italy in the UEFA Cup in the 90s. And then since then, it's been a bit 
bit of a mixed bag in those Premier League years in the latter stages you have those teams that have kind of crept in but no one Premier League team has won it in successive seasons no True. English team has won it in successive seasons so until that happens for me I'm reserving a bit of judgment having said that it's possible that this this is the time when we'll start seeing it with all that money a lot of that has to do with the exposure that the Premier League commands and attracts. You've arguably got the three best managers mm. in the world in those top three spots. The league's now globally, like it's a powerhouse with the biggest reach of any other domestic league in the world. And the level of football is ridiculous. It's a shame Messi didn't try his luck over here. I think that would have, you know, probably brought another... Premier League, tro uh, another Champions League trophy mm. to an English team if that had have happened. But we do seem to have the best players. And I think next season, if Haaland arrives in the summer, it'll be game on for whoever signs him. I think if I was Kylian Mbappe, I'd be looking at the Premier League definitely next season. I'd be hot-footing it over here um, then. And, and, and if mm. that happens, then I think we'll start seeing, you know, season upon season, English clubs starting to dominate. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, English teams were obviously banned from competing in Europe mm. for a, a certain time in the 80s because of Heysel. And I wonder I wonder whether some of those phases, some of those phases of dominance from countries would have been a, a little bit different um, had that not happened. Um, yeah, but it's a really interesting argument. Effect. Yeah, yeah. It's a really interesting argument that maybe we're in a phase, but not quite just yet. Calm yourselves down is the word <laughs> there from Bianca Westwood. <laughs> A reminder that you can check out the Athletic Women's Football podcast this week. I'm joined by England and Arsenal legend Kelly Smith and BBC football commentator Robin Cowan. There's a full assessment of the Arnold Clark Cup. Of course, big focus on the home Euros that takes place this summer in women's football. So do check it out. That's the Athletic Women's Football podcast. Okay, topic three, footballers supporting local ventures. There are some obvious ones here, aren't they? Like, you know, helping to support uh, hospitals and schools. A lot of footballers do that as part of their responsibility to the club that they're playing for. But we've gone for something slightly different today. Footballers supporting local businesses. This has been inspired because Arsenal have been running something called Arsenal Supporting Supporters, where the Arsenal players go to local businesses uh, around the club and shine a spotlight on them, basically. In the fourth instalment, Aaron Ramsdale's been seen going into the chip-in. Not sure what the sports nutritionist will say about that, but anyway, it's a well-known pre-match establishment uh, near the Arsenal ground. Loads of Gunners fans go there, and he's gone into just shine a spotlight on it and David Siemens turned up too by the way you can look that up online It got us thinking, though, about footballers supporting the local community, maybe micro businesses, maybe small initiatives that we haven't heard of, uh, some slightly more bizarre ones, maybe. Um, Bianca, what have you found? Uh, I'm going to start with Burnley's Josh Brownhill. He has used his social media profile to raise awareness of local shops and businesses in Burnley, basically because during the pandemic, if you remember, there was a, a bit of a backlash um, against footballers because of all the money they were earning and, you know, they should suspend their salaries and or donate and things like that. And he was frustrated with how footballers were portrayed as these like cash grabbers and, you know, financial mercenaries earning millions while businesses were failing everywhere so he said he wanted to change the narrative he created a, a video campaign on his social media about all the various small businesses around burnley so he was he'd like go into these like little establishments cozy coffee the riverside deli um park hill valeting hand wash i mean really sweet and the gallery as well we went and bought some art for his girlfriend which was nice Aww. um so he's also a keeper as well um you know and he's been speaking about how ever since he's, he's continuing this campaign how much the fans support him and the team so he wanted to give something back so that's I what he's been that. doing i yeah, love that really of course sweet. 
Premier League players did that big players together initiative, didn't they, to mm. support to support um, NHS together after they were uh, wrongly tagged with being money grabbers and not taking a pay cut and not being sensitive to what was going on in the world at that moment. Um, so important to recognise those players that have been doing stuff on a local level. Quick shout out to Ilke Gundogan as well, the uh, German midfielder who plays for City. Um, he did a similar thing actually and launched a charity appeal for local cafes and restaurants. So he focused on the hospitality industry and did loads of stuff like auctioning off special prizes, did a meet and greet, signed shirts. And I love the fact that he you know, specifically targeted local food businesses in his hometown mm. as well. I thought that that was a nice touch. Not sure how much he had to eat and drink his way through that, but there we go. Yeah. Um, Hayley? Um, I do have examples of footballers and businesses, but I did just want to highlight what Blackpool are doing since um, Simon Sadler's come in and made it a more um, community engaging club because it was a mess at Blackpool for a very long time. And they were a club that had always had great links with, with the locals, but that just diminished over the years that um, the previous owners were, were in charge. And they've developed community hubs. They've got much closer ties with grassroots sides uh, across the coast to help connections between young people and their local football club. They've launched something called this very cute Tangerine Teammates. And they say it's in a new initiative that will connect the first team squad with grassroots in their side. Sorry, Hayley, I was just thinking it sounds like they've all gone to have a sunbed together. <laughs> I, it does a bit, yeah. But hey, why not? A bit of vitamin D. So yeah, they're, they're, they're putting on virtual Q&A sessions with the first team and lots of sort of youth football sides. The players are turning up to training sessions and ahead of all these matches within sort of the little local leagues in and around the Blackpool area, um, the players are recording good luck messages and messages of support and then announcing man of the match at the end of, of, of the games as well after the weekend. So I just think it's really lovely Super that finally, mm. yeah, that, that that is all coming together and things are looking, looking up both on and off the pitch at Blackpool. What else have we got, Bianca? Um, this is slightly different, as in it's not sort of businesses, but it's more kind of along the lines of Marcus Rashford, these footballers with a conscience, um, feeling like they have a big responsibility to the next generation. You know, they're not just going to earn their money and then zoom off into the sunset in their Bentley convertibles and just leave everybody behind and forget about, you know, how they can be role models and stuff. Um, and Birmingham City cap captain Troy Deeney, he's actually been speaking about this this morning he's calling for teaching black asian minority ethnic history and experiences um he's calling for all of those things to be made mandatory across the school curriculum because he's saying the change is needed because you know young black asian ethnic minority children aren't learning about their own histories in schools um, he says the current system is failing these children. He's, he's written an open letter to the Minister for Education. He's saying he's not trying to erase British history in any way, but just enhance histories from these communities mm. that perhaps have mm. been forgotten like yeah. perhaps during, during the World War or, you know, inventions or art, you know, th these things that you don't get to learn about in school. I mean, I mean we learned about slavery. I mean, when I went to school, I can barely remember it was that long ago, but mm. we didn't learn about any other ethnic minority groups or anything that yeah. they contributed Same. to this country. And, and they absolutely did. And also the argument is that it shouldn't just be learning about slavery because that is exactly. one, you know, one point in time. Yes, it's yes, it's worth learning, but we also need to learn about you know, figures like Mary Seacole as well, the mm. nurse and, and, you know, really important um, black Asian minority uh, ethnic people throughout history. I mean, talk about the Tudors, there were black people in England during the Tudor period and no one <laughs> knows course. that. And no he's one saying, learns about that. He's saying that the only representation that they are getting, these young children, are usually negative ones. He just yes. wants to flip mm. that and yeah. just teach them a little bit more, not, not less of other his, like, British or English history, just a little bit more to, you know, sort of diversify just to represent what's actually happening in the country right now. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll be the same, Kate. My little one absolutely loves storybooks. She's only two, so she doesn't really understand what I'm saying. She just loves the pictures and babbling along, making her own little words up. But I've bought her some wonderful books, Great Women in History, and I've brought her lots of different books about um, various different people in history, whether they be black, Asian, whatever, 
to kind of teach her. And it's nice to think, oh, if I'm if I'm passing sort of little bit of history like that on at home I'd like mm. to hope that this is going to be done in 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 school as well to mm. kind of carry that on so it's not just something unusual that she's learning from me and my other half's family are Muslim so I want to make sure that she knows yeah. sort of where her dad's family are from and what that means yeah rather than just you know the negative kind stereotypes of, that, that yeah. yeah and it's and it's really important yeah. that, that that this isn't just part of Black History Month curriculum, that it's kind of an all-round mm. curriculum. Correct. My son Arthur is, as kind of a white kid in his class, um, is in a minority. We live in a really ethnically diverse borough in London, and he's one of only a few white kids in his class. Why, why should he learn more white history than anything else? He needs to understand the cultures and and the history of the kind of you know wonderful kids around him as well mm -hmm. so i absolutely support this you know white kids enjoy enough privilege sometimes on various <laughs> levels you know so we need to think about how we include and not exclude and educate as well brilliant one bianca i'll throw one in here as well and just talk about slightly unusual causes that footballers have donated to um, Mohamed Salah donates a lot of his money, particularly to projects in Egypt as well. But I love the fact that he put some cash into a sewage station. Not not, oh. not the glamorous thing that you might mm -hmm. want to plaque at, but Mohamed Salah has been, well, not kicking up a stink at all uh, in <laughs> Egypt by getting a sewage station off the ground, uh, supporting his local community back home. I just want to tell you about the footballer Abdurazak Hamdala, who is Moroccan and uh, was a Moroccan international and actually in 2019 was the highest scoring footballer in the world, mm. by the way. He is donating uh, money and it's it's really, it's this tragic story you might have seen in, in the news at the beginning of this month about the little boy who'd fallen down, fallen down a hole. And he'd slipped so far down this hole, yes. and there was a there was a five day rescue attempt to try and to try and um, get him out safely and well. And unfortunately, they didn't manage to do that. And um, Ryan Omar, who was just five years old, um, passed away. His family absolutely distraught, and it was a story that didn't just grip the nation, but but gripped, I think, the world as well. I remember a story like this when. I was young with a, with a child, I think a similar age to me, and they were rescued and, and, and found alive. But this footballer has donated money to the family and he's he's come out and said, you know, deepest condolences. Um, and he said, in, I have decided in my and my family's name and in the name of all Moroccans and Muslims to help bring a little joy to Ryan's family, his parents and his brothers. I'm buying them and giving them a fully equipped house. We ask God to accept us and make it in the balance of the good deeds of all the Muslims. Such a sad story, but, mm. but he was hoping he can, with that bit of money in a house and and um, what he's doing for the family, um, help his brothers and, and family go a long way in, in their lives. Yeah, thanks Hayley for that. Um, I'm gonna wrap up this one and we will check out with some any other business. So any other business, the smaller, maybe not quite so well-known stories that you may have come across this week. As our guest, Bianca, you get to go first. What have you got for us? So I'm going to start with um, Neil Warnock. I know everybody loves <laughs> Love Neil him. Warnock, don't they? Come on, you know you do. <laughs> He, you love him or he's Marmite, isn't he? You love him and or you love to hate him as well. He's great value for a meme, viral soundbite, a referee rant. Um, but he's also a wordsmith. I bet you didn't know that. So mm. last week he was reciting love poems and saying oh, that Azpilicueta isn't a good times. defender, which caused a bit of a storm. This week he shared his self-penned ode to an Arsenal-Sheffield United FA Cup semi-final in 2003. You know, sonnets have been written about some wonderful things, me. but this really does, you know, he's beaten Shakespeare with this one. I'll just give you a couple <laughs> of lines. It's David versus Goliath on Sunday, we know, and all we ask David is to put on a show. The mighty have fallen in the past, that's for sure. And losing the semi-final, I'm sure there's no cure. <laughs> 
He obviously likes to rhyme. Uh, well, Sunday on Arsenal on Sunday, boy, what a game. It gives all our boys a great chance of fame. And it goes on and on Does and it? on. Yes, but um, Neil Warner really has been providing us all with some great entertainment this week. And just quickly, he was talking about sort of players that got away. I know Big Sam's player that got away was Jamie Vardy. He knocked him back when he was West Ham manager, which has always really upset me. But that was a million pounds. You can kind of understand why for a non-league player, he might have said no to Jamie Vardy. But Neil Warnock was offered a player for 100,000. He was a second division French player at the time by a French player at Sheffield United, Laurent Jaffo. He said to me, Gaffer, I've seen a player for you. He's in the second division in France. Very good, very good, 100,000. He was like, mm, 100,000 second division player, that's a lot of money. What's his name? Didier Drogba. <laughs> he said, no, we can't play 100,000 for a second division French player. And you know what happened to him in the end. A couple of years later, he was bought for 24 million by Crazy. Jose Mourinho for Chelsea and won pretty much everything there is to win. So, yeah, that's uh, <gasps> that's Neil Warnock's probably biggest mistake. The ones that got away. Exactly. Yeah. Look, there's been loads of discussion, hasn't there, in the last few days about about whether St. Petersburg, uh, the Russian city, will remain the location of the Champions League final after Russia's apparent mm. assault on Ukraine. We'll have to wait and see what happens with that one. But meanwhile, I noticed that one Ukrainian player has taken a stand on Instagram, stand-up man City's Alex Zinchenko. Uh, has played for Ukraine. Uh, well, he's got 45 caps. Started his career in Russia, by the way. But he put a post up alongside a map of Ukraine and he wrote, the whole civilised world is worried about the situation in my country. I can't stay away and try to convey my opinion. Uh, my country belongs to Ukrainians and no one will ever be able to appropriate it. We will not give up. There you go. So standing up for Ukraine uh, on Instagram. And then we'll, we're probably going get, to um, get a fair bit more of that as well. But Zinchenko is certainly one of the first ones that I've seen uh, to stand up and, um, and make his opinion known about it. Hayley. Mine is two footballers meeting for the first time after one saved the other's life. This was this was recent. Um, it's a great story in the York Press today. Um, it's in Sunday League. John, who's a father of one, was playing for Huntington Rovers against local rivals Wigington Grasshoppers. He went up for a challenge for the ball, banged heads with an opposition defender. He had a fractured skull, an eye socket. He woke up in Leeds Infirmary not knowing what had happened, just heard a bang and woke up and had the most unbelievable scar on his head going from one ear oh. right through to the other ear. He's had metal plates fitted. He's had um, dozens of um, stitches across, a huge surgery, but it just so happened. He would be dead, by the way, if he wasn't helped by the opposition goalkeeper because the opposition goalkeeper, as I mentioned, Russ, had actually worked with the Halo Trust landmine charity and was positioned out in Afghanistan and used to treat soldiers fighting ISIS in Iraq. Wow. And he administered emergency care and helped keep his, his head together. His head together, basically. Yeah, and he, he wrapped him up in a foil blanket to stop the hyperventilating and um, yeah, took control of his neck, protected his airways. He basically did everything you could possibly do to try and save his life. A helicopter actually landed, took him to, to Leeds Infirmary. He's been in there for quite a long time and they've, they've, they've met and he's managed to thank him. But can you even believe that? It's, it's quite an incredible story. So yeah, there you Gold go. used to saving balls aren't mm, they not, not not just lives not people yeah, yeah exactly a wonderful story uh, and um i hope he gets better soon as well okay so i'm gonna need your advice and your listeners advice on this one because it's something that you know commentators and reporters have difficulty with sometimes you draw a blank and so you'll just pull out a football cliche that's absolutely <laughs> fine i've done it <laughs> Probably a million times. Now this one, it was inspired this week because Newcastle, I think it was probably a reserve game or something like that. They tweeted, two minutes, goal, Luke Harris breaks the deadlock for the visitors. Now this is after <laughs> two, two minutes. minutes. This two is minutes. after two minutes, yeah. So Adam Hurry from Football mm -hmm. Clichés, he's a writer on The Athletic as well. You may know him. He tweeted, oh, come on. So I was like... <laughs> I try not to use this phrase anymore simply because of 
Adam Hurry because he's sort of made it this big thing. You cannot say breaking the deadlock. And Adam says before 30 minutes. Now, I would try not to say it before half time. Yeah. So maybe I would only say it in the second time. So what, mm. do, what do we think? When are you allowed to say the deadlock has been broken? What is the minute cutoff? I think a few minutes before half time is the earliest that you want to go in with that. Some people on Twitter are saying 20 minutes is fine. 20, no. And Adam Hurry, actually, no. who is the football cliche king, this, yeah. says 30 he minutes. He says no. 30 minutes is fine. No. I'd have said. What do you think, Hayley? My ambition before Kate gave me her opinion, I would have said the second half, not long after the second half have kicked off, right, can they break the deadlock now? And it's like a moving on, new chapter, it's still goals. I wouldn't even use it in the first half, I don't think. Mm. I think can I'd they like come that. up with the opener? I don't know. I've been, I, I've been told. Mm. I will remember that. How, oh, okay, let's just, let's just run on that opener. Um, how long can you keep using the opener for? Yes. Because it feels well, wrong to use that in the second half, doesn't it? Yeah, I know. Bianca, come on. Oh, you're, you're really are, confusing me now. I'm, I'm thinking tonight. I'm, I'm going to be worrying about what not to say rather than what I <laughs> should say. If someone struck early, how early is early? Oh, God. Well, this, okay. is, this is the thing. Uh, struck <laughs> early, but before 10 minutes, I'd say. Okay. 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 But then, okay. And the opener? So and so scored the opener? I think the opener you can use at any time because it's the opening goal. Yeah, but it seems more relevant to be used in the first half, doesn't it? But you can it use it at any time because it's still factually the opener. The opening goal. Yeah, it's not I know it's correct, factually, isn't it? The, yes, mm. yes. <laughs> uh, look, you can get involved with this on Twitter as well if you like. Uh, try not to tag Bianca too much, please. <laughs> uh, at she loves it, really. Uh, time for us to go. Bianca, thanks so much for joining us. It's been so lovely to have you back. Uh, we'll Thank have to you. Lindsay off to another sunshine. <laughs> it's been Best great to be here. Thanks, um, Good luck in Stoke tonight, Bianca. What else have you mm. got coming up this week? Um, I am at Millwall, and I think they've got Sheffield United this weekend. So I think the deadlock will be broken definitely <laughs> uh, a lot earlier. I think we're, we're talking the opener will be around 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll be listening out for you. We're going to press the rewind button on our sky plus exactly boxes, um, Hayley what about you yeah back in the studio for the football show this Thursday and Friday building up to the weekend and actually tell a bit of a lie because I'll be at Wembley on Friday presenting a special mm. two-hour build-up show to oh, the uh, cup final on Sunday so that'll be fun pitch side around the ground um, with a couple of guests and yeah, building up to the game that unfortunately I haven't been invited to, but um, if anyone's got any <laughs> oh, so you do the show and then have to go home. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, invited back for <laughs> that Sunday. Would be a great shame, wouldn't it? Yeah. Anyone involved but, you know, in getting hate? Liverpool at Chelsea. I'm not that bothered. I'm oh not come that on. Um, well, look, we will look forward to seeing you as an essential part of that build-up. Thanks, um, thanks. thanks so much for joining us, Bianca. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, download this as your favourite podcast. Look out for us at the Arnold Clark Cup on the LEDs as well. And uh, until next week, we'll speak to you then. You've been listening to the Offside Rule, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Offside at OffsideRulePodcast.com and by following at OffsideRulePod on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Athletic.